You know, in the middle of that, he kind of said, hey, you know, we, we tried to do to make this study more diverse, but we were unsuccessful. And I was like, wait a minute, let's, let's rewind. <laughs> Go back to that. That's Annalie Armstrong, a senior editor here at Fierce Biotech. Later, we'll hear more from her about an interesting conversation she had with Greg Rippon from Genentech. I'm Teresa Carey, and this is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma. This episode is brought to you by Zymo Research. Today is Friday, August 26th. Stick with us. After a few announcements, we've got all the biopharma and medtech industry news you need. Okay, so each year we spotlight women who are leading the way in life sciences. Women are making their mark all over biotech, pharma, and medtech, and we want to know about them. So we invite you to share your nominations at FiercePharma.com. We're looking for women who are making a lasting impact on the industry. Submit your nominations before midnight tonight, Friday, August 26, for consideration for our list of 2022's fiercest women in life sciences. My other announcement, we are launching another podcast. Our team at Fierce Healthcare is excited to bring you every Wednesday a few in-depth discussions from industry thought leaders and innovative people who are pushing boundaries in the healthcare industry. So mark your calendar and set a reminder in your phone And on September 7th, hit follow for Podnosis. And now, here's this week's news. The FDA approved a new spinal cord stimulation device from Abbott. As Andrea Park reports, it is called the Proclaim Plus Neurostimulator. And it can treat pain in as many as six areas of the body at once. The Proclaim Plus Neurostimulator is an implanted device that sends out mild electrical pulses to the nerves along the spinal cord. The stimulation is meant to interrupt the way the brain processes pain signals. Physicians can calibrate how much stimulation is delivered to each target area, aiming for a low but effective dose. Meanwhile, patients can download Abbott's Neurosphere app. With the app on their smartphones, they can monitor the neurostimulation therapy and communicate with care teams. The implant can stay in place for up to 10 years without requiring any recharging. That's because it sends out its low-dose pulses only as needed, while other systems with shorter lifespans typically work around the clock, giving users a constant tingling sensation. Angus Liu reports that Gilead Sciences HIV Med has finally received its first global approval. The med, called lenacapavir, is currently indicated for patients with an HIV infection that's resistant to multiple drugs. In the U.S., the FDA has previously rejected the drug because of a manufacturing issue with the vial. But now it's approved in Europe, and the FDA is considering Gilead's resubmission. They should have a decision in December. The HIV drug's selling point is convenience. Compared with traditional daily oral pills, the Gilead drug is just taken twice a year. But it must be alongside other antiretrovirals. So Gilead must find a combination partner. This summer was the weakest quarter for biotech's IPO in years. As Nick Paul Taylor reports, in the second quarter of 2022, just three drug developers pulled off IPOs. That's a tiny number compared to the 111 from last year. But despite the chill, Third Harmonic Bio has decided to brave the frosty waters, and its IPO could provide an indication of whether a recent uptick in biotech stock prices means renewed enthusiasm. Third Harmonic's pitch to go public rests on a small molecule inhibitor called THB001, 
The inhibitor is in early phase trials, but if successful, it could provide broad symptom relief to patients with a range of allergy and inflammation disorders. And we've got more news coming up, plus a deep dive into a new report on diabetes brands and some insider insight into Genentech's Alzheimer's research. But first, a word from our sponsor. Zymo Research is a world leader in sample collection. Safe Collect sample collection kits are designed for at-home sample collection with no cold shipping or expedited shipping required. Samples stay stable at ambient temperature for up to 30 days, and samples are safe to transport with DNA, RNA shield, and activating pathogens, including COVID-19 and monkeypox. I received a series of sample collection kits from Zymo Research, and we tested them out with my family. Both the oral swab and saliva collection methods were very easy to use. I have two young kids, and I can confirm that it is not easy to do proper nasal swabs on children under five. Uh, While the saliva collection took a little while to complete, it was very effective with my five-year-old. He even had fun doing it. And my two-year-old did great with the oral swab. It's highly preferred over the traditional nasal swabs. The sample instructions were clear, the collection method was easy, and I was comforted knowing that any pathogens would be deactivated once they enter the test collection kit. If you'd like to learn more about Safe Collect Sample Collection Kits, go to zymoresearch.com. That's Z-Y-M-O research.com. Elcon, a former Novartis subsidiary, is laying out $770 million to take over Airy Pharmaceuticals. The two companies announced this in a press release on Tuesday. The buyout is expected to close near the end of the year. The deal lets Elkin get its hands on Aries' marketed glaucoma and ocular hypertension meds. Last year, Aries reported $112.1 million in sales of its two glaucoma drugs, a 35% increase over 2020. For the rest of 2022, Aries expects the meds to bring home up to $140 million. Elkon is also getting access to Aries' most advanced clinical candidate, a drug to treat dry eye disease. That drug, AR15512, is currently in late-stage development. Teva's had a troubled injectables plant in Irvine, California, and the saga is finally coming to an end. As Fraser Kansteiner reports, last July, Teva received a scathing FDA inspection, so the facility temporarily shut down production. Fierce's Fraser Kansteiner heard from Kelly Doggerty, a company spokesperson, via email. She confirmed that now Teva is winding down manufacturing there for good. When it comes to supply continuity, Doggerty said that the company is transferring or ceasing production of medicines made in Irvine. For example, the company has transferred production of a chemotherapy and anti-emetic to another Teva site. At the plant's temporary closure last year, the End Drug Shortages Alliance issued a warning. It said that Teva's manufacturing halt could fuel shortages of up to 25 generic sterile injectables. Five of those injectables are essential medicines, for which Teva supplied more than 15% of the market in 2021. Senior editor Annalie Armstrong was doing a pretty routine interview with Genentech's Greg Grippon when she heard something unusual, a mea culpa. So after a short break from our sponsor, we'll hear from Annalie Armstrong as I check in with her to get the scoop. Zymo Research is a world leader in sample collection. Safe Collect sample collection kits are designed for at-home sample collection with no cold shipping or expedited shipping required. 
samples stay stable at ambient temperature for up to 30 days, and samples are safe to transport with DNA, RNA shield, inactivating pathogens, including COVID-19 and monkeypox. SafeCollect sample kits can be used to detect a number of pathogens, including but not limited to SARS-CoV-2, dengue virus, Ebola virus, influenza A, rhinovirus, MERS coronavirus, West Nile virus, as well as a number of bacteria and yeast and eukaryotes. From NASA to Nobel Prize winners, those who rely on safe, simple, reliable sample collection use Zymo Research products. To learn more about Safe Collect sample collection kits, go to zymoresearch.com. That's Z-Y-M-O research.com. So I was interviewing Genentech's Greg Rippon about his company's latest Alzheimer's conference for this major phase three study that they're conducting for their therapy, which is called gantanurumab. And you know, in the middle of that, he kind of said, hey, you know, we, we tried to do to make this study more diverse, but we were unsuccessful. And I was like, wait a minute, let's, let's rewind. <laughs> Go back to that. Mm-hmm. So they tried to make it more diverse, which is what a lot of studies need to do because the results of the study can apply to more diverse populations. Yeah. And Alzheimer's is like way, way more likely to happen in Black and Hispanic communities. So it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty glaring in, in Alzheimer's when you have an all-white trial. Um, This study program, which is pretty big, is going to tell us hopefully once and for all if the drug works to actually improve the symptoms of Alzheimer's. Recruiting for this study, which is which the program is called Graduate, this happened back in 2018. So that's a bit of a while ago. And at that time, Genentech was just formalizing, kind of formalizing its internal structures for finding more diverse candidates for all of their clinical trials. So when they were recruiting for graduate, they tried to find more diverse patients um, that could better reflect the population of Alzheimer's. They did three pilot study locations that tried to recruit more diverse participants. But in the end, the, the program is still 96% white. So we're going to see a readout from that study later this fall. Um, and mm-hmm. now they're they're hoping to kind of improve that and, and do some more studies and and other initiatives going forward. Lack of diversity in these trials is pretty common. What is their what's their next step? So this doesn't happen again. Yeah. So like I said, it's kind of too late for graduate. Um, although a lot of the, the initiatives that they did start are continuing. For instance, they have multiple sites with Spanish language capabilities and two sites are seeing patients in Puerto Rico. But there's a couple of really big things that Genentech is doing to make these studies easier for patients to participate in. So first of all, they're really focusing on trying to get the medicine prepared so that it can be administered from home. This is kind of a key learning that advocates have said can really boost enrollment in underrepresented populations. Um, It can be hard for people to get to a clinic to get their infusion every month. So These are things that companies really have to think about going forward. So one of the things they're doing with gantanurumab is they're making a subcutaneous formulation, meaning it would be injected under the skin. This is the best way to have patients or their caregivers administer their medicine medicine on their own. So that means that a patient could receive their medication at home, either from a caregiver or a healthcare worker. So they wouldn't have to travel to an infusion center once or twice a month. 
and could maybe visit the study site as little as twice a year instead of monthly. And how does this help Alzheimer's patients in general? Because if you can do it at home, a lot of these Alzheimer's patients are living with a caregiver or in a home. Perhaps they could, this could become a real thing, not just a study thing. Yeah, and that's exactly what Greg told me. Patients want to be at home where they're most comfortable. And that's really crucial with Alzheimer's when you're treating patients who have dementias. So any effort to reduce the burden on caregivers who may have to like take time off work or, or whatever is great. What else is Genentech doing? So they're taking things a step further um, in terms of trying to um, prepare for home delivery. They're actually developing an auto-injector device too, which would make administration even easier. There's a lot of drugs out there that have this kind of like fancy device. Like you can kind of, um, there's a a lot of diabetes drugs have this. Mm -hmm. Um, So it just kind of makes injecting medicine just like a one-shot deal. They've also signed a bunch of partnerships with Alzheimer's groups, including the Global Alzheimer's Platform Foundation Network, or GAPNET, to develop better ways to conduct trials and make trials more effective. So finally, and maybe most importantly, Genentech has pledged to complete a whole new dedicated study specifically for diverse populations within its ongoing graduation program, which is kind of part of this big umbrella study for gantineurumab. And so you've been following Alzheimer's for some time now. Do you think these this will all come together? Do you think it'll work? I certainly think it'll help. Um, I think there's a lot of long-term things that need to happen to improve diversity. This needs to be something from the top down. Um, and, you know, Genentech has said that they are doing this across their clinical programs. This isn't just for Alzheimer's. Um, so this, you know, ideally, these strategies are built into the clinical program from day one. They can't do that with gantineurumab because this drug has been in the clinic for, I I think it's something like 20 years. So hopefully, as we see more therapies come out for Alzheimer's, they will start using these strategies immediately um, so that this won't be a talking point in in 10 years when we see the next crop of therapeutics. Um, But yeah, here, you know, seeing Genentech kind of doing this mea culpa saying, this is how we're going to do better next time. I think that was really important and it would be great to see more pharma companies kind of have that humility. So Greg says totally. that these ideas are going to be a fixture mm-hmm. of every study from now on. So hopefully with diversity at the root of every study, we'll see a major improvement. Thank you for talking with me. Yeah, sure. How memorable are diabetes brands? According to a new report, patients are too overloaded with names to remember. Here to discuss how pharma can step in to help is Ben Adams and Karita Anderson. Ben, you recently covered a really fascinating report. It kind of revealed that all that money that pharma companies spend on direct-to-consumer advertising might actually be falling on deaf ears. Um, In particular, this report was about how much type 2 diabetes patients remember drug names, or I guess how little they remember those drug names. So let's dig into the details. Tell us a little bit about what that report found. Yeah, so the report uh, is done by a company called Freesia. So they've talked to a few thousand patients about their recall of type 2 diabetes treatments specifically, so not insulin, the kind of treatments you'd take to help lower your blood sugar level. Um, There are probably as many as 20 drug treatments out there. And this is one of the problems that they found is that with so many drugs out there, the recall was very low. So there are some really big names. You've got Eli, Lilly's Trulicity, 
you've got Bowringer and um, Eli's uh, partner drug Jardians, and you've got Mark's Genuvia. These drugs have been out for years, and yet the recall for these was 29% for Trulicity, uh, 27% for Jardians, and just 24% for Genuvia. And these were the top three recalled drugs. Now you wow. consider you were talking about the market. That's 30 billion in dollars that these um, that these 15 to 20 old diabetes drugs are making every year. And they're spending tens of millions each month um, advertising these on DTC TV ads. And yet that recall is very low. Um, and it's even lower when you come to use of these drugs. So for those same drugs, that's Trulicity, that's Genuvia, and that's Jardiance, 16, 17, and 19% of respondents respectively have only used those drugs, which again is very low. Um, you compare that to a cheap generic, which has been around for decades called metformin, Almost mm. everybody had a recall of that drug, around 76%. And even oh, really? more than that had, in fact, tried the drug. Um, and that kind of is a part of the pathway. Um, typically, that's a cheap generic. So you're going to be put on that first when you're first diagnosed with type right. 2 diabetes. Um, and then you're going to go on to the fancier, more expensive patented drugs as you go along. Um I mean, price is also a big issue there. If you can have a cheaper drug, you're going to take it. These newer drugs are much more expensive. But it is interesting that pharma is spending so much money on these drugs and, and they do make so much money and yet patient recall seems to be so low. Yeah, those numbers are definitely startling on the one hand, the high numbers in terms of the market that's out there and how much is spent on advertising and then the small small numbers uh, in terms of recall. Like you said, a $30 billion market is really big. There are a lot of patients affected by type 2 diabetes. And the, the FISIA report was pretty big. It was a sample size of about 4,000 patients. Mm. So that's definitely something to go on. Um, you know, and that's the reason why companies like you mentioned, Nova Nordisk and Eli Lilly and Merck spend so much on TV advertising. Um, I know you keep a track of these numbers on a monthly basis too, mm. Ben. Um, and July, uh, we pulled up uh, that report, didn't we? And there were five drugs, five diabetes drugs in the top 10 meds with the most dollars spent on them for TV ads. Um, the spending for those five drugs totaled $79 million, according to real-time trackers, iSpot, that you keep up with. Mm -hmm. So, Ben, you mentioned Lily and Murph before. What about Novo? Yeah, Novo, interestingly, not in this report. So we didn't get a breakdown of every drug and every recall. Um, this see. is a limited report in terms of what we're able to see, because Freezer obviously does this for its clients. We see the kind of top line. Sure. Well, I mean, Eli Lilly and Novo are the two biggest diabetes drug makers in the world. Merck's up there as well. But interestingly, no Novo. So they make Ribelsis and they make Ozempic as well. There's also an obesity drug they make, Begovi. The ingredient of that is a GLP-1 semaglutide. It's pretty much the same ingredient across all of them. They are, however, delivered slightly differently and in different doses for each indication. One is oral, one's injected, and one is given slightly differently under Wegovy for obesity. But consistently, Novo Nordisk is, is usually in the top five, almost certainly in the top 10 every month that I've been tracking them through iSpot in terms of DTC advertising. Also Absolutely. two of the biggest um, drug names in the industry. And I wonder sometimes if we get slightly blinded by the amount of money they make or the amount that we we are talking about them. Um, because clearly, through this report anyway, patients are not remembering Ribelsis and Ozempic. And they've both had new adverts out, uh, TV adverts specifically this year, 
um, which again, they've spent tens of millions, maybe even so far hundreds of millions from this year. And yet the recall, as I say, the, the final figure we got for Merck's Genuvia was 24%. So they're clearly going to be lower than that. And for the amount of money that they're spending on the advertising would suggest to me that um, perhaps that's really not following through into patient recall, which is very interesting. And the the report found as well, so they're the only two GLP-1 um, approved drugs. Um, and I believe it's Ribelsis that's the oral treatment, which is definitely the only oral GLP-1 right. on the market, which Novo makes a very big deal about, and it does in its advertising as well. Mm. However, Freesia is saying quite rightly, almost all diabetes patients don't really care how the drug works, yeah. what the mechanism of action is for a diabetes drug. Does it matter to them? What matters to them? Does it lower blood sugar level? Does it give me side effects? And most side effects for these sort of drugs is going to be nausea. So if they manage to either bypass that nausea or it's manageable and it's keeping their their blood sugar levels down, that's kind of all they care about. Um, right. Yeah, so the outcome is the most important for them naturally. Yeah, so they don't you, care about, SGL, yeah. Yeah, SGL2 or a, a GLP-1. Yeah. And, you know, it really, <laughs> Just a bunch of alphabets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think this was another important point that you raised in your story that, you know, once a drug is prescribed at a doctor's office, a patient is pretty much left up to their own devices, pun sort of intended because their care also includes devices besides drugs, devices to, you know, check their blood sugar levels and such. Um, and there are so many drugs on the market. So talk to me a little bit about switching drugs, because that's another key part of how a disease is managed, right? In terms of finding the right drug for each patient. And yeah. I know pharma companies themselves spend a lot of time and money trying to convince patients to switch to their drug. But the report had some interesting findings on this front as well, didn't it? So uh, there's two interesting parts to that. So before switching, the the way diabetes is managed by the doctors and then by the patients is is almost unique um, in terms of how patients are managing their conditions. So you will typically go to a doctor, be diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, given metformin later on, and then you will probably be offered a branded drug. That will depend on several factors. A lot of these new drugs as well have new labels that can help patients reduce the risk of chronic kidney disease and certain forms of heart disease to right, major risk right. factors for patients with diabetes. So that might be one of the reasons that you would switch from metformin or from a branded drug across to another one. But the market, as we've said, 15 to 20 diabetes drugs. So you're going to be wow. on a drug. You're also going to have a device um, that you can measure your blood sugar level with. You're going to have blood strips that are also attached to that. You're probably these days going to have a mobile app where you can store all of that data and <laughs> right. share it with your doctor. Um, if you Sometimes you're going to have to take insulin as well when your diabetes progresses, then you come off the medication, but you still need to check your sugar levels and take you know, uh, long-acting insulin and then short-acting insulin, and they all have their different names as well. So wow, it, yeah. uh, you think, you know, if you have arthritis or cancer, you're typically in hospital, you're being infused or injected with a medication. What you're taking is not really your choice. Here, it's right. very different. You're kind of left to your own devices. It's a chronic disease that you're going to have for your whole life, essentially. Um, and it's one that you're pretty much left to manage. So switching is something pharma would like you to do. Uh, and it's something that this report found patients are more likely to do, want you want to do in terms of switching from their current medication to try a newer medication. However, doctors are far more reluctant. If a doctor puts you on a medication, they're typically going to do that because they know it, they are comfortable with it, and they're comfortable with this. That's pretty much true of every doctor and every medication. 
especially with diabetes, because if you take a patient off that and switch it, their sugar levels could go all over the place. You could introduce new side effects. Doctors don't want to do that. But patients have, a, and again, this report found this, have a very low satisfaction with the, with the medication that they're on, specifically the branded medication that they're on. Um, and they are far more willing to switch. Again, a lot of this is to do with side effects, and a lot of this is to do with nausea, which is probably the most common side effect for these drugs. Um, and sometimes these aren't controlling their blood sugar levels in the way they would like to do. Um, they would like to switch, but Freesia report found that doctors are slightly reluctant, and they are saying that having an education campaign that was targeting these doctors and also engaging more with patients themselves would have them feel more secure and more understanding of the brand that they can or should be taking. And it's the same with doctors as well. Mm, interesting. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot going on um, in the diabetes care space. So there's definitely a lot of moving parts. So on that note, so after all that money spent on direct-to-consumer advertising, what's mm. going wrong and what do pharma marketers need to do? Well, it is a case of there are too many drugs and too many drug names. So what can you do? Um, Freezer specifically in an interview with us said that education campaigns designed to focus and target patients is going to be the way forward. I personally always question just how much will a patient engage with an educational campaign. So the Freezer report found that tailored education campaigns are going to be the way forward. So one specifically targeting patients. The more you can engage with a patient, the more they're going to trust your brand is the thinking behind the educational campaign. If you are engaging specifically with, say, an Eli Lilly Trulicity educational campaign, and they can show you that they understand not just what you want from the drug, but also some of the other issues that Freesia found in this report is that mental health and mental well-being is quite low amongst diabetes patients, especially younger diabetes patients, so millennials, um, are really struggling to be able to live their normal lives, having this particular condition, feel sometimes that it's being sidelined uh, or even slightly stigmatized because of its association with obesity. Um, so if, if you can find an education campaign that's dialing right into that and can help engage you with that, then that's much more likely that you will remember Eli Lilly and Trulicity. That company cares and, and understands what it means for you to have type 2 diabetes. And that's probably going to help a lot more than a kind of scattergun DTC approach. Yeah, you know, your your skepticism isn't unwarranted because this is definitely a new approach. When I think of education campaigns, I definitely think more directed at healthcare providers, doctors yes. and the like. So targeting, doing direct-to-consumer sort of education campaigns would definitely be slightly different and an interesting one. And of course, and and of course what would want from this report is for them to take those conclusions and then add them to their their rotor um, and hope for, and they will hope that that will work. Um, so there's obviously a kind of inherent bias in how all of this works and why. And we always have to take with a pinch of salt exactly how well these things may or may not work. But that's certainly the conclusion of Freesia and it remains to be seen whether that would work. But I think it clearly shows that DTC TV advertising on its own and the amount of money that's being funneled into it isn't necessarily improving patient recall. I think we can definitely take that from this. Yeah, that's a good point. The TV ads aren't pulling the way as needed. Yeah. Well, you know, more for us to keep tracking and more for you to keep a watch on, Ben. <laughs> Indeed. We'll just dive right in. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right, Max. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't know if I can do this without oh, laughing. Oh, I'll do a great start. <laughs> I mean, I just say your name and I start laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Max is back. <laughs> Max is back. Um, so, Max, tell me about the finance tracker. Okay, well, let me introduce you to the fourth fierce tracker of the tracker family. It started with COVID. Uh, I believe the second fierce tracker was layoffs, followed by the monkeypox uh, tracker. Uh, run by our fierce healthcare team. And now we have the finance tracker. Uh, That is essentially a running list of any biotech financing rounds, private financing rounds, $30 million or higher. We do a quick little synopsis of the round and what the money is going to be immediately spent on. Okay, so why did we launch this tracker? Oh, well, this answer is easy. Last year, there were more than 200 financing rounds north of $50 million. And there are um, two fierce biotech writers and two fierce biotech editors. So that math (laughs) meant that I think we had to sort of come up with a different way to cover as much financing as we can. So uh, So what you're saying is that you guys were just getting lazy. We were not getting lazy, (laughs) but look, hey, when you have 200 companies doing uh, fundraising rounds north of 50 million, that's like 200 companies uh, that have clinical pipelines to cover, drug development updates. So I like to say productive because because when all is said and done, I think this is actually a very good way for us to sort of take um, information, condense it, put the most important information at the top, and also to give our readers an area where they can sort of see all the financing in Mm -hmm. one place. And I think that's actually pretty valuable for people, especially given the pace of financing. And so what is the state of biotech financing? So here's the interesting thing is that we launched this tracker the year after, you know, a ton of financing and financing has has actually slowed. We're seeing that because it, it's sort of a, a an, an indicator that's lagged behind a reduction in initial public offerings, uh, companies hitting the public market and a reduction of some uh, index funds, public index funds in biotech. Last quarter, we saw a pretty sharp reduction uh, in financing, but not a crazy reduction. What what we're still seeing is that there are a lot of companies receiving nine-digit fundraising rounds. And so, Max, we've had a COVID tracker, a layoff tracker, a monkeypox tracker, a financing tracker. What's going to be the next one? Oh, man. If I were to guess, if I were to guess, I think like a pipeline coal tracker would be up, like tracking all of the mm-hmm. meds that get sort of dropped by the wayside. Um, because I think that's, you know, that's sort of the trajectory. You, companies get this these financings. That money uh, primarily goes towards R&D. And at the end of the day, every company can't keep hold of every asset that they want to want to hold on to because they cost money to develop. Um, so maybe they get out licensed, maybe they get dropped altogether. So if I were to guess, that would be the next one. But that's also an area where we sort of like to expand on the news. And, and, and I think it's valuable to sort of, you know, add 300, 400 yeah. words to, to those updates. <laughs> um, <laughs> is there anything else we should cover? I think that's it. Just stay tuned on the tracker. Excited to keep updating it. Um, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, we, we have a, a ton of rounds to sort of keep folks updated on. And uh, uh, I want to tease out, you know, maybe some fun data projects that come from keeping tabs on all of these uh, updates and maybe in the uh, near future. That sounds exciting. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. And one more thing before we go. Next week, we have a special edition. Instead of covering the weekly headlines, we'll be doing a deep dive into the Alzheimer's landscape. From drugs that are in phase one to phase three trials, including smaller biotechs and big pharmas, we'll discuss it all. We're also looking back at past winners of our Fierce 15 awards. 
companies that were given the honor 10 years ago. And we'll find out what they're up to now, a decade later. You won't want to miss that one. That's it for The Top Line. I'm senior producer, Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodgson. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at FiercePharma.com. Look for podcasts. Don't forget to follow The Top Line on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you listen. And that's The Bottom Line from The Top Line.